characterized by great feasting and love. And I pray that this message will prepare us to live in that world according to the law of gov- that governs that world, the, the law of love. I pray that you'll help me to be clear. I, hope, I pray that the Bible will speak clearly to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. So for me, this is kind of the start of the holiday season, right? Our, our church Thanksgiving feast. And I know I'm running a risk here by making a mention of Christmas before Thanksgiving. There's a big debate in our house that you need to have Thanksgiving, just have it space. But, <laughs> but for sermon illustration purposes, I need to do this. This is the time when you send out Christmas cards, right? And I realize all you mothers are going, oh, no. <laughs> so here's the question. Who do you send a Christmas card to? Right? Isn't that kind of the standard question? Like, how many people, how many Christmas cards do we need to order this year? How many portraits do we need to order this year? Well, I came across a study from 1974 where a researcher sent Christmas cards, like handwritten Christmas cards, to 600 strangers. And do you know how many they got back? 200. One person wrote a four-page response to the stranger who sent a Christmas card. And they kept on exchanging Christmas cards, and one correspondence continued for 15 years. Right? So why do all these people send Christmas cards to a stranger who sent them a Christmas card? Well, it's called the law of reciprocity. That if somebody sends me a card, I'm obligated to send them a card, right? The law of reciprocity means if somebody scratches your back, you scratch theirs. Quid pro quo. You you return the favor. Somebody does good to you, there's there's like this obligation to do good to them. And that's really something that, that just governs how we operate in this world. Somebody gives you a gift that you think is worth about 50 bucks, you give them a gift that's worth about 50 bucks. Somebody invites you to their Christmas party, guess what? You're obligated to invite them to your Christmas party. That's the law of reciprocity. It's something that just governs this world and even how we operate. But as we go to the Sermon on the Plain, we see that there is this contrast between the way this world works and the way the next world will work. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verses 31 through 36. After calling them to love his enemies, love their enemies, Jesus says this, starting in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, this is the Sermon on the Plain. 
Jesus is preparing his disciples to go out into this world to be his emissaries, to be his apostles. And he's preparing them to encounter all kinds of resistance from this world. And to help prepare them, he, he speaks about the true blessing. You know, blessed are you when you mourn. Blessed are you when you hunger, when you thirst, when people say all kinds of evil things about you. You are blessed because your inheritance is great in the next world. He then calls on them to, to love his enemies, to love their enemies, to bless those who, who persecute them, right? And there's this countercultural command, something that is called to go against the grain of this world. And you look at the hardest command, right, to love your enemies. One of the reasons why it's so hard to love your enemies is because we are so entrenched with this law of reciprocity. That when people do good to you, you do good to them. But when people do evil to you, you do evil in return. And so Jesus kind of assaults the heart of what makes it so difficult to love our enemies by addressing this law of reciprocity. And this law of reciprocity, it is inbred in just how we live our day-to-day life. Kids, if you want to get dessert or something special or have your, your parents take you bowling or to Chuck E. Cheese, you're extra sweet and extra obedient. Now, if one of your coworkers asks if you can do something extra and relieve them of their burden, you might think to yourself, why, sure, I might need them to do the same someday. Wives, if you are hoping that your husband will make an out-of-budget purchase, you might be extra sweet, serve him his favorite meal. Husbands, you might be helping with the dishes, putting the kids down, and being extra kind and nice so that your wife might return the favor when the kids go to bed. Right? That's how it works, isn't it? That is the natural inclination of humanity is a quid pro quo relationship where we are putting other people into our debt with our good deeds, and we feel a burden, and we feel indebted to other people when they do good to us. But Jesus shatters it all. He says, that is not the way it is to be among the sons of the king. That we are governed not by a quid pro quo relationship with everybody else, the law of reciprocity. What we're governed by is a higher calling. It's the law of love that is not rooted in performance. It's not rooted in what we do. It's rooted in the way God loves us. God's love is not contingent upon what we do. You can never merit God's love. God's love is, is anchored in who he is. He loves because he is love. And as sons of the king, we're called to the same. And so this is what I want to do today. I, I, I want to purify our love. I want you to purify your love so that you are, are, are showing yourself to be a son and daughter of the king who love with the law of love. Because this is the kind of love that will last forever, the law that will be true when we finally enter his full kingdom. And to do this, we're going to kind of contrast these two loves, okay? The law of love versus law of reciprocity. We're going to see that the law of reciprocity responds, the law of love initiates. The law of reciprocity seeks a reward from the object. The law of love seeks a reward from God. And the law of reciprocity reflects a world's idea of love, The law of love reflects the divine ideal of love. 
okay? Two different kinds of loves. Where do you fall? Where do you want to be? And we'll talk about how to get there. So let's look at the first point. The law of reciprocity responds, but the law of love initiates. This is a very familiar passage. Luke 6, 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is the golden rule, right? As you wish other people would do to you, you do to them. Now notice it does not say what others have done to you do to them. Or how... how How you hate to be treated, don't do to other people. It's a positive command. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, this is not a new commandment. It's been around various societies expressed in different ways. But it's normally, normally, at least in the Hebrew context, a negative command. As you hate to be treated, don't do to them. If you don't like it when people do these things to you, don't do it to others. And in some way, ways, that's an easier, an easier command. You just don't do what you don't like done to you. I used to engage in the male code of gift giving with all my single male friends. The idea was this. I won't give you a gift, and you don't give me a gift. We'll just spend our money on ourselves and call it good. And I remember a friend of mine said, well, I couldn't resist. I got you this gift. And I said, oh what are you doing? Right? So sometimes we're, we're kind of governed by this passiveness in our relationship with other people. And when you think about, well, I'm just not going to do what I don't want done to me, then you can just have this apathetic, distant relationship. I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone. But that's not what is taught here. The main command is do. Do. You do something. And it's a two-stage command. The first one is you, you think about, what do I wish someone would do to me? What do I wish someone would do for me? You're watching the Chiefs game tonight. And you have a big, giant bowl of chili with your friend. And lots of Fritos on it. Lots of Fritos. And you eat it. And then you wash it down with Brahms ice cream. And next thing you know, during halftime, you're parched. You're thirsty. And you think to yourself, you know what? I wish I had a drink. So you tell your friend, are you thirsty? Yeah. Do you want a drink? Oh, I do. Can you get me a drink too? (laughs) What I wish to be done with for me, you know what you wish, right? Because we're all experts on self-love. I have a PhD in self-love. No one knows how to love Dave Hintz like Dave Hintz, right? Just ask him. Just ask him. But that's not what the golden rule is. It's not thinking about what you wish others would do for you. It's thinking about what others, what you wish others would do for you, and then you do to them. So the correct answer is when you're parched because you ate all those Fritos and that chili... You say, would you like a drink of water? Oh, yes, you bet. You go get two glasses, right? That is the law of love. This command forces you to to look around and see needs, see what other people would like, right? We live in a broken and fallen world where there are just needs all around us. 
And, and to just try to restrict love to, well, I'm just going to not be mean to people because I don't want them to be mean to me. Or I'm not going to confront people on their sin because I don't want people to confront me on my sin. See, this whole law is really governed by another law. In, the, in a parallel passage in Matthew, it says, after the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. Right? The law of the prophets governs this law. I don't want people to confront me, so I won't confront them. Well, that's outside the law of the prophets, right? This is kind of like a versatile command. Whatever you wish other people would do to you, when you're on the lookout, you think, you know what? I need to do that for other people. You are always seeing yourself as a solution to other people's needs. That is a law of the kingdom that initiates, that initiates. You also see that the law of reciprocity seeks a reward from the object, and the law of love seeks a reward from God. Look at 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So here Jesus distinguishes different behaviors. You have the law of reciprocity, right? He kind of goes down the list of different expressions of it. And he says, if you do good in response to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? And there's some discussion here about what is meant by what credit is that to you. Now, someone could say, well, what he's talking about is if we do good to other people, God will do some good thing for us. So if I want that blessing from God, I'll do good to some other people, then God will do good to me. But that's kind of a quid pro quo relationship with God, isn't it? Right? I'm doing good to obligate you to do good. It still is self-serving. When he talks about what credit is that to you, I think the better understanding of it, or, or maybe a better translation would be, God's, God's not impressed. If you only do good to other people who do good to you, God's not really impressed with that. But if you want to impress, impress God and have him say, that's what I'm talking about, add a boy or add a girl, then you do these things. It's about, about what kind of behavior solicits the smile of God where he says, that's exactly what I love to see. So here's the contrast. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, back when I was in college, there was a very popular country song entitled, I Love the Way You Love Me, which is kind of a roundabout way of saying, I love me, <laughs> and I love the people who love me well. You love me well, and I love that about you, right? I just ruined the country song for many people. Sorry if it was sung at your wedding. You didn't know. <laughs> But, you know, it's really easy. When, when people love you, of course you're going to love them in return. Even narcissists do that. I know narcissism is kind of bandied about and everything, but there's great explanatory power to the story of narcissists. Do you know this, the story of narcissists? He, he was the son of the river god in Greek mythology, and, he, and he's walking by a pool of water when all of a sudden he sees himself. 
and stares at himself, and he just falls in love with his image, and he drowns or he starves. You know, he, he can't take his eyes off of him. And you know the type, like narcissists, these are people who just have this heavy amount of pride and self-idolatry. They truly believe that they are the center of the universe. They lack compassion and empathy. Uh, you know, they, they are self-indulgent, self-focused. They're self-idolaters. They have a grandiose sense of, of their own self-importance. What's good for them is good for everyone. God's will perfectly coincides with their will. And, and are they capable of love? Is a narcissist capable of love? Well, if you ask a narcissist, are you capable of love? They'll say, short of Jesus, there's no one who can love like me. I will love you so much that you'll be sick of me loving you. I'll love you that much. And if you love a narcissist, you will get love in return. But if you show anything less than what a narcissist wants, you will be repaid with wrath in whatever form that takes, right? So you love those who, who love you? Hey, narcissists do that. Sinners do that. God is not impressed with that kind of love. Moving on. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. I mean, if you're keeping score on the people who do you good so that you'll do good in return, God's not impressed by that. Now, in the opening scene of The Godfather, I'm not endorsing this movie, but it's a very, very famous scene. You have a mortician who is appealing to Don Corleone, the godfather played by Marlon Brando, on the godfather's daughter's wedding day, and he makes a request. He explains that he has one beautiful daughter who found a boyfriend and thought she fell in love the boyfriend pressured her to do what she did not want to do, but because she's an honorable woman, she refuses. And then the boyfriend beats her and gets his friends to beat this poor woman who tries to hold on to her virtue, the mortician's daughter. They disfigured her face. They hospitalized her. She'll never be beautiful again. The boyfriend and his compadres get sent to jail but a judge is bribed and they get a suspended sentence. They get off scot-free. And this angry father says, Godfather, I want you to do me a favor. And the Godfather says, well, what do you want? I want justice. I want justice. The Godfather responds by saying, now you come to me on my daughter's wedding day. You don't really want a friend like me. You don't ignore me. You, don't, you ignore me. You don't say hi to me. He says, what do, you, what do you want from me, Godfather? He says, I want respect. Be my friend, Godfather. Be my friend. And when the Godfather is convinced that he has the respect of this mortician, he says this, good. Someday, and may that day never come, I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Is it a gift? Is it a gift? In fact, when you look at the, the book cover of The Godfather, there's a crossbar you know, for a marionette on it. And the idea is that The Godfather does favors for people 
so that he can obligate others to return the favor in the future. He uses his power to do good to control other people. Isn't that right? So you do good to those who do good to you. God's not impressed with that. And if you lend, verse 34, to those who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He's taking a financial bent. This is talking about loaning for the sake of other people versus a personal investment. You all know it's a wonderful life, greatest Christmas movie at all time. Oh, don't frown. I love it. I'm touched by it, right? But you know the story of George Bailey. George Bailey, his business is, you know, Bailey Savings and Loan. He makes risky loans to servicemen and other people so that they can achieve the American dream. He, if you know the story, he doesn't go on his honeymoon because he seeks to, seeks to keep the business open to really help the community, so much so that when the evil Mr. Potter tries to buy him out so that he can have a monopoly on, on the banking industry in Bedford Falls, he says, you're running a charity. So you look at George Bailey's behavior, it was commendable because he was loaning to people who could potentially not pay him back. Whereas Mr. Potter is only loaning to people who will. Right? When you loan to people who will pay you back, that's not giving, that's not noble, that's just making an investment. And Jesus says that God's not impressed by that. He's not impressed. But what impresses God? Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Notice, loving your enemies by overturning the law of reciprocity. Right? You love those who don't love you back. You do good to those who don't do good to you. You lend to those who may not ever pay you back. And all of this gets affirmation from God because you are showing yourself to be a son or a daughter of the Most High. Now, granted, you don't do this to become a son and daughter of the Most High. We know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But those who have been changed by the Son of the Most High, we'll talk more about this later on, they don't earn this right, they confirm this reality. Our God loves us in spite of us, right? You can never merit God's love. God can never love you any more than he already does. He can never love you any less. His love is perfect for you because it's not anchored in you. It's anchored in him. And when you love this way, you show yourself to be a child of the king. You, you, you are giving a kingdom love, the love that's going to be more true in heaven among us. Thirdly, the law of reciprocity reflects the world's idea of love, and the law of love reflects the divine ideal of love. So look at 35 through 36 again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And a reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, we love for God's sake, not our sake, right? We love expecting nothing in return. And those who love like God's love, those who love like God loves, show themselves to be sons and daughters of the Most High. Now, I I have two sons, Jacob and Nathan, and you can tell they're my sons because they're, you know, for a number of reasons, they're very good looking and, and witty and, and humble. And they love the Jayhawks. And if you were to ask them, why do you love the Jayhawks? They'll just tell you, so my dad will love me. That, that's not true. Not, well, it's kind of not true. But, um, but you know what? They love what I love, right? They love what I love. And they look like me. They're shaped by me. When you're a son of the Most High, you are loved and shaped by your father. And your father loves his enemies. Look at verse 35. This is amazing. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We're going to have a mass holiday on Thursday called Thanksgiving, where people are all going to give thanks. But to who? But to who? You ever thought about that? You see God's kindness in action in contrast to man's ingratitude, I think most clearly in Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, God is kind to those who reject him. They know he exists, but they'd rather not worship them. They don't want to worship God. And so how does God respond? Well, we know eventually there will be wrath, but in the meantime, he's kind to them. In the parallel passage in Matthew 5.45, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Right? Sunshine is wonderful, isn't it? Puts you in a good mood, helps plants grow, warms the earth. Rain is also wonderful. We know that. It brings water to earth. We can drink, enjoy. It helps the plants to grow. It feeds and nourishes us. So you have this group of people that know God exists and say, no, thank you, I'd rather worship this goat. I'd rather worship this calf. I'd rather construct my own kind of idol and worship it because it could be under my control. And that's one thing about gratitude is gratitude 
kind of expresses a certain amount of indebtedness, doesn't it? Like when you're thankful for someone, you basically say, I couldn't have had this or done this without you. It was because of your benevolence that I benefited. And when people are governed by the law of reciprocity, as this world is, they don't want to give thanks to God because they'll feel indebted to him. So it's better to pretend that he doesn't exist. But he is still kind. As I talked about last time I preached, he still desires all men to be saved. He, he, he doesn't delight in his wrath. So why are people still damned? Well, it's because they reject him. Going on, verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Right? You reject God long enough, say, no, thank you. No, I don't want it. I don't want it. He's still going to be kind, but it's like, if you don't want this, then you can have what you want. And they're abandoned to their passions because that's what they want. But God is still kind. He was kind to you when you were his enemy, wasn't he? Why is it that you are capable of this kind of love? Why is this even a possibility for you? Well, we love because he first loved us. We don't love because we're loving in and of ourselves. We are incapable of love, aren't we? But because he loved us, we're able to love. Because God is merciful. Right? Be merciful as your father is merciful. He loved his enemies. For Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Right? We were enemies, and yet he still sent his son to die for us. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. I want to stop there. You look at the context, world is a big, bad world. The world is a system that is opposed to God. The world is the enemy of God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The father gave his son to people who hate him. We're his enemies. And when we become Christians, there is a transformation, right? Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. This type of love that he loved us with changes our capacity to love. And so John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you with this great love and has done a work to give you this capacity to love. So why is this difficult for so many people. Why are we still hooked on this law of reciprocity? I think for one, it might be because you've never seen this done. You've never seen people operate any other way. It was the way you were raised. I mean, we live in a world where everyone is governed by their own self-interest, and society works through almost this, this interwoven web of debts and obligations and favors and blessings to really try to get us to get along with this law of reciprocity, right? It, it is 
In some ways, common grace is predictable, right? People operate their own self-interest. And you might have been taught that if somebody gives you a big gift, nothing's free. What do they want? What's the, you know, the, the, there are strings attached, right? If you buy a truck, say goodbye to your weekends because you're going to be helping all your friends move. If you pull out a package of gum in public, you'll only get one piece from that packet, right? Because everybody else will want one. That's just the way things operate. Son, that's the way it works. Get used to it, right? You, you've always taught that. Well, part of becoming a, a, a Christian is to think in this new way. There is a transformation that takes place. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And we learn this in a community, right? So you're not going to be perfect. God loves you in spite of your imperfections. You might be a Christian who's still governed by the law of reciprocity in some way, but allow God to change you and to love you through this. And part of that is to be a part of a community where this happens on a regular basis. Secondly, you might have a hard time letting go of the law of reciprocity because you fear that other people are going to take advantage of you. If people do nice things to you, you're going to be called to return the favor. And you fear that you're going to be the one who's always returning favors and always doing good things and and you don't have any recourse but just to go along with it, right? You're the dutiful child. Everyone counts on you to always come through. And you have been taken advantage of. You do get the short end of the stick. You have been wronged. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's addressing a church that, uh, to put it nicely, they're, they're dysfunctional. They're dysfunctional. Selfish, self-serving, at odds with each other. There were actually lawsuits going on in the church. Can you imagine if we had different people, like George Sleazer was suing John Wernley, and what kind of witness that would be? And Paul's trying to say, very nicely, you guys are a bunch of morons. (laughs) You're a bunch of morons. You're fools. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not just suffer wrong? Isn't that, well, I can't just suffer. I can't just, well, why not? Why not? To preserve the witness of Christ, to claim the blessings of, you know, blessed are you when people take advantage of you. Why not? It's not, it's not worth it, right? Our reward is not in getting what we want and leveling the, leveling the playing field in this world, Right? It's in the world to come. Thirdly, you have a hard time with the law of reciprocity because you want your enemies to pay. You want them to pay. You want to see justice here. That's, you know, and that's incidentally why there is this real fixation in our society on justice. 
when you don't believe in an afterlife or any concept of divine justice, it has to happen now. You look at Jonah. Jonah lived in Israel at a time where they were being dominated by foreign powers. It'd be like living in occupied Ukraine at the moment. And God tells Jonah that I want you to go to Nineveh, the home of your enemies, go to the Kremlin, and preach that they need to repent, that judgment is coming. And Jonah thinks to himself, well, if I do that, they might repent, and then God will have mercy, and they won't be judged. And I don't want that, do I? So he goes the other way. God, through the miracle of a fish, brings him back to Nineveh. He preaches judgment, and everyone in Nineveh repents. And is Jonah happy about that? Jonah 4.2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why are you letting them live? I mean, you see the selfishness here, don't you? You know, it's really interesting how hell is a consolation for many people. You know what? My boss backstabbed me, let me go, treated me completely unfairly because of my Christian witness. Oh, but he's going to go to hell, so I better have mercy on him. My ex has done everything in their power to make my life miserable. But they're going to burn in hellfire, so... I better pray for them. My hell, hell is a, let's just say, it's a source of consolation. But then they get saved. You mean they're not going to hell? What? I'm just saying out loud what you say inside. We all know it. Because frankly, some of the hardest people for Christians to forgive are other Christians who they know won't experience hellfire. And so there's subtle ways that you try to punish them. If they come to church, I'll ignore them. I'm going to throw a big party, let everybody get invited except for them, then I'll let them know that they're not invited. Right? There's all kinds of ways that we do that, but when God shows mercy on other people, frankly, you just can't let it go. And you know what? I, I like to just say that, you know, this sermon will change that, but it might be symptomatic of a deeper spiritual problem if that's where you are. See, the fourth reason is the reason why you can't get over the law of reciprocity is because you have not surrendered your life to Christ. It's not a case of you won't do it, but you can't do it. Now, First John was written to a group of churches that had this virus of heretical theology beginning to infect and tear that church apart. Many people were leaving, and so John doubles down on not only the, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, but the, the number one indicator of who is and who isn't in the body of Christ that we can see, and that is their capacity to love. First John 
3, 16, and 17. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John 4, 7 through 4, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. Did you get that? 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we love because he first loved us. I like that. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has because... Uh, For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our capacity to love others is an indicator of our conversion. You know, these hard commands seem impossible for those who don't have the Holy Spirit. Hard commands in Scripture seem impossible to those who don't have the Holy Spirit. And do you know why they seem impossible? Because it is impossible for them to obey those commands. The only people who can truly obey those commands are those who have been loved by God, who have been changed by God who have been transformed by God, who receive the Holy Spirit from God. And when that miracle happens in your life, when God first loves you, he loves you with a love that led him to send his own son to die on the cross for you, a son who was willing to do so to bear God's unending wrath, eternal wrath for you, he was raised from the dead, and he calls you. And, and, and when you follow him, when you're changed by him, you become born again. You become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And there is a new capacity for love that you've never had before, where you can have faith. Those feelings don't magically disappear. Sometimes they're hard fought. Sometimes you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But the desire to love is there. You're like the man who appeals to Jesus who is told that these demons only come out of your son by faith. And he says, well, I believe. Help my unbelief. An inability to love is a spiritual problem. It is. And it can be solved by the Holy Spirit. And so as Jesus is calling all his disciples, there's a broader invitation here, isn't there? It's to forsake the way this world works. To say, I'm done with the law of reciprocity. I'm going to be governed by this kingdom law, the law of love. And when you lean into it and surrender it, God can do that work in you. And just think about how different this community in this room will be if we're governed by that kind of law and that kind of love. It's beautiful. It's attractive. And frankly, God's impressed with it. God is impressed with that. So let's pray for that reality.
and then we'll sing a song, and then we're going to celebrate that reality with a great gift from God in this feast. Well, Father, we come before you grateful for the way you have loved us, changed us, and transformed us. And I pray for anyone here who perhaps has been kind of cut to the core, thinking, I do not love that way. There's something wrong with me. Lord, that realization in and of itself is a sign of great hope. And I pray that they will cry out to you, that you will change and transform their capacity to love, and that they will love in the kingdom way. They will love in the way that you have loved them, and that their love will be a testimony to your greatness and your capacity to change. May it be beautiful and inviting. We thank you, Lord, for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.